Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. On today's episode, we'll wrap up the 2020 election with two of our favorite guests, Washington Post national political reporter Bob Costa and Mark McKinnon a veteran political advisor, former musician, and co-host of Showtime's The Circus. With Bob and Mark's expert perspectives, we try to make sense of the electoral warfare being waged on the results of the presidential election. We consider the historic turnout numbers across the country, combined with razor-thin margins in so many races, and unpack the tribal allegiances behind what look like Democrat and Republican splits. We'll also look ahead to the two upcoming special elections for Senate seats in Georgia, which will determine the balance of power for the next two years and make or break important parts of any Biden agenda. Finally, I want to thank you all for joining me on this journey. We set out on the day of the Iowa caucus to make a show that combined my passion of music and politics to bring people information and community during an all-important election season. Amidst the craziest year any of us will ever live through, we've had a great time bringing you these conversations, and this show has been a bright spot at a time when myself and many others have needed it most. And lastly, I want to address why I haven't been around lately, and I also want to thank Doug High for filling in a couple weeks ago. But at the end of September, on September 28th, my daughter was diagnosed with a recurrence of her brain tumor. She had been in remission for seven and a half years, and her mother and I were beginning to grow confident that we'd seen the last of that awful beast. As of today, she's halfway through radiation treatment, uh, and she's doing great. Her hair is thinning, but her energy and spirit remain high. She is showing us all how to endure this with dignity and beauty, and we are following her lead. So thank you for all your prayers. We ask that they continue. We ask for your positive energy and good vibes. We'll take it all. And most importantly, thank you for listening to Politics of Truth. Mark McKinnon, welcome to The Politics of Truth, and Robert Costa, my unofficial co-host, welcome again to the final episode of The Politics of Truth. Woohoo! Well, so let's look at this idea of finale. I want to go to you first, Bob. The goal was start this show after the Iowa caucus, end it when a winner has been decided in the presidential election. Bob, this is uh, eight days after the election. Do we have a winner? And will that winner be inaugurated on January 20th? Bob, it's great to be with you and Mark as well. I've been loving the circus this entire time, and I've been missing your band, Bob, during this this whole campaign. To have a campaign without the outlet of music and live concerts has been tough. 
We do have a winner at the Washington Post. Uh, we've gone along with the call by the Associated Press and Edison Research and other outlets, major news organizations. It is President-elect Biden. But there is deep division in this country about accepting that result, stoked, of course, by President Trump himself. And we're looking at a long, drawn-out process of people in their silos, especially on the right, saying that the election was stolen and unfair without offering any evidence beyond anecdotal accusations. It's kind of where I always expected this campaign to end, with acrimony. President Trump came onto the scene in 2015 as an outsider with grievances against the establishment, fueled in part by support from white voters in a fast-changing country. He has been at war politically with his own party at times with Democrats. So in a way, of course, it ends this way, political warfare and an erosion of integrity in the election, at least from the Republican view. Mark, maybe a clear winner in the Electoral College as the votes have almost all been counted. And uh, I think even if Biden was to somehow lose Pennsylvania due to a legal challenge, he would probably still win Georgia and Nevada, which he would need to get 270, or he would probably hang on to Arizona and Nevada at the very least. So the Democrats won the presidential election, but they didn't have such a great night on election night. What happened? You're right, Bob. Um, The conventional wisdom going into the election was that that Biden was going to win and and likely win big. And and Democrats were so enthusiastic and there was such a vast turnout. People made the assumption that that was mostly Democrats turning out in larger numbers. And what we discovered was that uh, we are still a really divided country. There was a repudiation of Donald Trump, but there was not a repudiation of Trumpism. In fact, just you you could argue just the opposite, that when you net it out, to the earlier point about who won, Joe Biden is a is a clear winner. I mean, he is he he has actually won by a larger margin than any challenger to an incumbent president since FDR. The margins now are substantially, you know, they're twice the margins that Donald Trump achieved in 2016. So again, as Bob said, it's no surprise. This thing was started messy. It's going to end messy. Uh, the president wants to be, a, you know, he's always been a grievance candidate, and he wants to go out uh, declaring that it was illegitimate. And I. I predicted in a column a month ago that he would run for re-election in 2024. I mean, I just don't think he's going to go quietly. He's He's got that incredible uh, coalition that he's not going to want to let somebody take over, even if it's his son or daughter. I just don't think he thinks that anybody else has his juice to keep that coalition uh, together and inspired. And, and so so I, so it's, he thinks it's in his best interest. Of course, he's convinced himself, I'm sure, that because that he can't accept the fact that he lost. Uh, that's just that's psychologically impossible. But but to your point, I mean, we we have the Republicans picked up seats in the House, which nobody predicted. And and they they increased their share of Hispanic votes, increased their share of African-American votes, increased their number of women in the House by more than they more than doubled from 13, I think, to 29 at the last count. So, you know, this is a and by the way, I say to, to my Democratic friends, you should pray every night that you nominated Joe Biden, because I can't think of another Democrat that would have won this race. So, Mark, your former boss, George W. Bush, is one of those Republicans who did come out and congratulate Joe Biden on his election. Does W. still hold the weight in the party that he once did? Or was he the leader of a party that is long gone? And is there anyone else in the uh, the political establishment who could come out and maybe force 
Senate Republicans to come out and congratulate the president-elect? Well, I, you know, I think uh, as Bob Bauer, the president's lawyer, said, you know, he said, this is, this is theater and it's playing to a smaller and smaller audience every day. I think it was, I'm really glad to see uh, President Bush come out. I, you know, I had a lot of people, you know, texting and calling me saying, you know, W needs to do something, W needs to do something. So I'm glad he did, you know, and I, and I think he, I think the timing was right. And I do think his voice is important. Yeah, the establishment wing of the Republican Party is nowhere near what it used to be, although it may rebuild itself in the next few years as the Republicans kind of try and figure out, uh, you know, their way through the desert. Now there's going to be factions of the party and that'll be that'll be one of the factions. Um, so it's important. But the other thing I think that's 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 critical to this is kind of the world leaders all weighing in. It's just everybody's kind of just, you know, again, it's it's a slow process and an ugly process. But you know, pretty soon you have kind of the world endorsing your presidency, and it's pretty hard to escape that. And that's kind of what Donald Trump's always been against, right? He's always been America first. And, the world and, uh, weighing in, yes. Right. Plays into his, it seems like everything can play into Donald Trump's hands. Bob, we talked about the down-ballot Democrats who had a terrible night. I'm thinking about Orange County, California, and, and all those California Republican seats that flipped the Democrat in 2018 should we think about election night 2020 as a referendum on Donald Trump alone and America as a center-right country regardless? I was just talking to Katie Porter, the House Democrat from Orange County this week, and she survived her race. Uh, and she, she, she's in, a, in an area that has traditionally been Republican. But a lot of Democrats uh, found themselves on the outs in, in competitive seats. What you're seeing across the map is a repudiation of President Trump from 70 plus million voters, but you also saw 70 plus million voters vote for him despite everything that's happened. This is a country that is becoming less red versus blue and more tribal. And when I'm encountering voters and when I'm talking to strategists in different parties, it's really clear to me that they're not just trying to rally Republican voters. If on the Republican side, they're trying to rally voters who have grievances with the establishment, political, business, media, maybe they hate tech companies, maybe they hate the, the newspapers or, or a cable channel, but it's about the stoking tribal allegiance. And for now, that's expressed through President Trump himself, but that could take a different direction in the coming years. And for Democrats, the tribal allegiance was not so much to a progressive agenda, but to just get rid of President Trump, this figure who has been loathed for five years since he really became a key figure on the scene. By the way, speaking of Orange County and, and surprises out there, you know, Harley Ruda was a, you know, a terrific candidate, I thought, and, and one that, you know, was really an upset in 18. But just the fact that he lost his race to me was just more evidence that, you know, uh, that, that we really have. Because I think it really is a center-right country, Bob, to your point. You guys probably know Bruce Melman and that great work that he does kind of a futurist around town, but he, he described Trumpism when, I, you know, I was asked the other day, you know, what, do you, what is Trumpism? And I thought he had a really good definition. It's, 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 it's Americans who hate globalization, fear the new economy, leaving them behind, anger at political correctness and elite condescension and profound disagreement with socialism. So I thought that was a pretty good summary of, you know, the kind of voters who, you know, again, may have rejected Trump, but did not reject what he stood for. Bob, I guess it's it's going to come down to once Trump leaves the White House, we're going to see this divide take center stage between moderates and progressive Democrats. And we're already seeing it. 
how can they come to a truce to make 2022 more like 2018? I'm not so sure there's going to be a truce in 2021. One of the underreported stories remains the ascendant left, and it's, it's beyond Bernie Sanders and AOC. The Democratic Party is facing a total upheaval of how their own party perceives its positions on healthcare, trade, college tuition, intervention abroad. And there's a reckoning happening in the Democratic Party quietly in a sense because President Trump remains the dominant story. But for a President Biden, he's going to have to navigate that and it won't be easy. From what I can tell, the Democratic Party is going to try to push him on health care, on uh, pursuing a public option, on climate change, Green New Deal. But he's not going to have an enormous amount of wiggle room with a divided Senate. And so executive orders will be central to make sure the left stays in line with him and friendly to him. You're looking right now at, at a Republican Party that sees an, a lot of opportunity to make further gains in 2022 after making some gains in 2020, despite headwinds. Uh, so the incentive for Republicans to build a bipartisan coalition isn't really there, though you could see it, I think, on the budgets in particular, because McConnell and Biden have cut deals on the budgets in the past. I used to hang outside of McConnell's office and Biden would come by a lot during the Obama years. And there's a rapport there, but I don't think there's a, a relationship that's going to have enough political capital to do much more than keep the government open. Bob, one thing I think is that, that Joe Biden's going to thank his lucky stars, or probably already is, or quietly, but he'll, he'll never say it, that he has a Republican Senate, or that there, that there may be a Republican Senate, because it's just going to, it's going to limit those excesses that, you know, that instinctively he would have thought was kind of too much, too fast, too soon, uh, and he would have, it would have just created enormous problems for him, but now he can blame the Republican Senate, and, and I think that in a lot of ways that's kind of going to be a saving grace for him. Well, then what gets done? Not much. <laughs> Not much. COVID relief, maybe an infrastructure uh, bill. It's, boy, it's going to be just around, it's going to be incremental for sure. Bob, do we see the uh, normalization of Washington? I mean, do things get a little, little more boring over the next year? They might. I think it's going to be, if President Trump leaves the scene and maybe retreats for six months to 12 months and starts looking ahead to 2024 or whatever he wants to do, it could turn a bit. But the problem for President Biden would be you have a Republican Party that for the next 70 or so days, in many quarters, is going to be calling this election stolen. And it's going to lead to a poisonous atmosphere in Washington among a lot of Republicans who just won't embrace Biden. You saw the gruff answers to Nancy Cordes on CBS this week when the senators, the Republicans going to lunch, when they were asked, are, have, are they ready to congratulate Biden? Heck no, there's nothing to congratulate him on. So that's kind of the atmosphere Biden is moving toward, but it could change. So much of this is about the Georgia Senate runoffs and Republicans got to keep that base energized in Georgia, the majority's on the line. And that hovers based on my reporting over almost everything Republicans are doing right now. But by the time the Electoral College meets and the election certified, some of these tensions, some of this heat could dissipate. You know, one other thing on the, on the Senate situation, I'll mention again, this is a, a fun fact from Bruce Melman that was just <laughs> stunning to me. But being the student of politics that you are, Bob, maybe you know this, but this is the first time that an incoming Democratic president has not had a Democratic Senate since 1884. Put that in your pipe and smoke. Wow. 
So this is just coming across the the wire from the AP. Georgia audit to trigger hand recount of presidential vote. Any chance here that the Democrats pick up both those seats, guys? I'm dubious. Again, this is conventional wisdom just dictated by the history that I've seen, which is that in special elections, Republicans almost always do better. Democrats do well in presidential elections because they just have better turnout, but they're just not as good as turning out their voters in a special election. Now, this may be completely different. You got the Stacey Abrams factor. You got the Senate. You know, it could be completely different. Bob, what do you think? I agree with you, Mark. I think uh, what you're looking at here is a potential. I, I've been seeing Ossoff, uh, who's running against Purdue and uh, on MSNBC a lot. And you could see him maybe galvanizing in a Jamie Harrison style way, a lot of support for Democrats having a shot in the South. But we saw it was tough for Harrison in South Carolina. Now, Georgia has different demographics, a, a bigger Latino American population, strong black population of Democrats, white liberals in the suburbs who have been moving in there for cost of living. So there's a coalition that's possible. The candidate I'm really paying attention to is Warnock, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's the senior pastor at Martin Luther King's Ebenezer Church in Atlanta. And he, to me, if you look at his ads, you're an ad guy, Mark. His ads seem pretty compelling. He's got a message. Uh, and he hasn't gotten a lot of attention. He's running against a weaker incumbent in Kelly Loeffler, who hasn't won statewide like Purdue. And so if Warnock could touch, really turn it on with ads and viral ads and fundraising, it would be easier to beat Loeffler than Purdue based on my own assessment of things. That's interesting, Bob, because I haven't really watched Warnock much at all. But you think he's a pretty good candidate? Like all, a lot of candidates who are just coming into the national spotlight, there's going to be a lot of their past that's become the headline. But I think his ads are well done. I would love to hear your view at some point on them. And, but I, th I think there's a potential there because Warnock, to me, is a compelling personality. He was there with John Lewis at the, running the funeral for John, the late John Lewis, civil rights icon. And he's just got a, a way about him that is a unique political personality. Whereas John Ossoff, respectfully, is kind of a generic younger Democrat in his 30s, progressive, kind of s serious in his delivery. Warnock has more intrigue to me as a candidate. What happened with the polling? I mean, I'm a subscriber to the Cook Political Report going in, uh, Dave Wasserman and Charlie Cook. I mean, Charlie Cook said this could be one of those years like 1980, where it's like uh, a land, a blue wave plus plus a, a year with a zero, which means, you know, all the, the redistricting and all the. I'll tell you my take, Bob. I mean, it's fucked up. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. I mean, everybody thought 2016 was fucked up, but they thought they were going to fix it. Right. So we know they didn't fix it. So we know it's a much deeper, deeper kind of institutional problem. And I think the problem is pretty simple, really, and, because I've wondered for a long time. And and, uh, and and maybe this is too simplistic. But now, given what I'm seeing, I, I think there's got to be some truth to it. Now I'm seeing some, you know, some smarter people than I am right about it. I don't know anybody in my, you know, in my in my orbit, except for maybe my mother that would answer a, a that would answer a pollster's call or, a, or, a, or, you know, or an online questionnaire from somebody out of the blue. I mean, they just don't. Normal people don't talk to pollsters. And so if you're trying to get a universe that reflects the normal people who vote, you just, it's just really hard to do anymore. Because people, you know, I just, like I said, I don't know anybody that would answer a poll. So you're not talking to normal people. You're talking to people that, A, may be more active. And this is where you kind of drill down on it. And, and, and again, somebody much smarter than I wrote about this saying that a lot of Democrats, you know, because of their kind of different approach to COVID, were much more sort of 
you know, in their bunkers in March, April, May, June, July, when a lot of polling was going on, and that they are just more because of their passion uh, and because of kind of their orientation anyway, and because they're not as skeptical of the media elites and pollsters, they answer polls. And they did because of COVID and they were, had nothing else to do. And then to take that a little further, Republicans are just generally more suspicious of the media, and the media includes pollsters. So they're just going to be less inclined to talk to them. So, I mean, I know they try and, you know, they try and balance it and, and get it to reflect the universe. I just think getting the, the ability to reflect the true universe of people who actually vote is getting harder and harder and maybe impossible. To Mark's point, it's so true. I always encounter as a reporter voters who, when I ask them, who are you supporting? They go, oh, I hate them both. I hate them both. And it'll sometimes take four or five questions in for them to go, Trump, Trump, or Biden. And there's such a stigma to have a national dialogue, to have a political dialogue with your spouse, your friends, your colleagues, let alone a pollster you don't know. And I think that, that hovers over everything too, uh, as much as people not using cell phones as much or answering calls from random people. Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. Let's move to Joe Biden, the man, and that story, because that is an incredible political story. Henry Clay ran for president three times, didn't win. Adelaide Stevenson ran for president three times, he didn't win. And um, William Jennings Bryan ran three times, he didn't win. But for some reason, somehow, some way, Joe Biden did. What was it, Mark, about Joe Biden that made the third time the charm? Well, it's, it's really it's really an incredible story, isn't it? Uh, I mean, politically, personally, his life story is just so dramatic and, and emotional. And then his, you know, his inspiration to run this time because of Bo and Charlotte and all of that. And, and yet the story is even more remarkable for what he overcame in that primary and that election. I mean, I know Bob remembers well, as I'm sure you do, just how out of it everybody thought he was. He ran fifth and Iowa fourth and New Hampshire, I think. And did he run any better than fourth before uh, South Carolina? No, I mean, it, it's all South Carolina. I mean, this that's was not I mean, a Biden victory. This was a Democratic consolidation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, and it happened in a, in a remarkable 72-hour period. And, you know, uh, I, you know, James Clyburn, prior to that, I, was, I would have been hard-pressed to tell you an endorsement that ever really mattered. And that one mattered in, in such a profound way. But Biden, you know, it's just you think about what the Democrats, who they needed to nominate. They needed to nominate a guy who was maybe not that exciting. You know, somebody that was that was that could appeal to, you know, a center right country. 
uh, and re- and resist those physics of the Democratic Party that that have been so salient in, in recent years. So, and you know, the other thing that struck me too is that f- from a messaging point of view, it reminded me of a lot of 2000 because. You know, generally speaking, in, in most presidential elections, if the economy's in good shape, that's pretty good for the either the incumbent or you know the person running for the incumbent party, like Al Gore was in 2000. And the economy was in good shape then. And yes, people who they agreed with on most issues, they agreed with with Gore. Uh, but 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 President Bush decided to make it a different kind of question and message, which was he wanted to restore the honor and the dignity of the White House. And it was a character issue. He was really running against Clinton, not so much Gore. And Gore was just the proxy. And that's what Biden did. He said exactly the same thing. And in fact, he said those words exactly. He said, I want to restore honor and dignity to the office of the White House a number of times and made it a character issue, talking about restoring the soul of the nation. And so, he re- I mean, to his credit, they kept it really simple. They didn't you know, follow a lot of sparkling tangents. They had a strategy. They stuck to it. Even when Democrats and people like David Axelrod were giving him hell for being in the bunker this summer, they stuck to it and they just, they knew that they wanted, the, the projected image they wanted was calm, safe, reassuring Joe. And in the end, that's what worked. Bob, Democrats, after Biden was nominated, were just so afraid that Biden was going to say something. He's like known for being a gaffe machine. He's, he's an entertaining guy. I love him for being just compassionate. And what Mark was saying about, about what he's been through, you know, like myself, he had a child that fought brain cancer and um, and he, he lost the child and he lost the wife. But as a candidate, he's always been prone to saying something, you know, that just uh, is kind of silly. How did he become so disciplined over the past six months, seven months? I'm not sure he became more disciplined. I mean, he, he had fewer public events, but that was often due to the pandemic. But to your point, Bob, there was that fear that he would have be a gaffe machine. But that fear almost helped Biden because that conventional wisdom had been so baked in to the media, to the electorate, that when he did go astray and make a remark that was odd or somehow off, it didn't become a, a seismic political story. The, the, uh, just to amplify a little bit of what you're saying, Bob, too, which is this is a man who uh, is not afraid to express compassion and empathy. And I think that's a big factor. I'm not trying to be a a psychologist like many people are and diagnose the president. But but I will say that during the 16 election, my daughter sent me a book, which is it's called something like as straightforward as the history of, of psychopaths. And it turned out to be, a, a, it's a great read because it kind of just goes through the whole history of, of psychopaths and, and how the science came to be and how the diagnosis came to be. And they, and it talks about all the famous psychopaths we have known and kind of tells our story, which is interesting. But couple of things that were interesting about it. One is there's a like a 20 question test they use to determine if somebody has psychopathic tendencies. And that's been kind of a standard for like a pretty long time now, 30 or 40 years, something like that. And if you answer yes to, you get like two points for a yes, one for a no and zero for a maybe. And if, and if you get to, out of 20 questions, if you get to 30 on the yeses, then you get locked up. Uh, and I did a back of the envelope on Trump and I got to 27 pretty easily with about five of them that I couldn't answer. But the one the reason I raised this whole issue is, is the greatest indicator of all those 20 questions is lack of empathy. And you look at this president and you compare that with Joe Biden and kind of how different they are on just the notion of empathy. I mean, if, if a little kid were hit by a car on Fifth Avenue Donald Trump's response would be, oh, that was a Cadillac 1957, I believe. You know, it just, 
I don't think he has a, an empathetic chromosome. Uh, and, and Joe Biden's got an extra one. So if we take that and then we think, okay, Joe Biden clearly looks like he won the popular vote probably by 5 million votes, maybe a little more, maybe a little less when it's all said and done. There were still 70 million plus who voted for the guy with no empathy. And here we are right now in the midst of a pandemic where, as of today, we're approaching 250,000 deaths. You know, at the time uh, when people were voting, we were over 200,000 deaths. Bob Costa, to you first, what does that say about what people are looking for at this time in a leader? It shows you that the Democrats still have work to do to win over those voters. A, a global pandemic, a president who shattered every norm, been impeached, been the subject of federal investigations, at least his administration and his allies. Despite all that, all of it piling up on President Trump's shoulders, he still has an enormous amount of support in this country. And part of it's because as much as politics has been totally nationalized, in my reporting, I encounter so many Americans who don't pay close attention to every little incremental development, the kind of uh, daily norms that are shattered or daily controversies that alarm Democrats and consolidate Democrats to go against Trump. For people who are low propensity voters or disengaged from the day-to-day -day discourse, President Trump is a character from The Apprentice. He's a businessman. He's an outsider. He can be amusing, too controversial, too repugnant, but he doesn't alter their own lives in a way where it might seem like he's so dominant on Twitter and in other spheres. He's not as dominant with the whole electorate in terms of their daily life. And so that has enabled Trump to kind of destroy the political system and the way things operate in many respects, but still carry on as kind of a normal president in the eyes of millions of Americans. And the economy has done pretty well under his watch, at least at the stock market. People vote on economic interests. They don't want to pay higher taxes. They believe Republican tactics and, and, and pleas that the Democrats are socialists. And all that is kind of in Trump's favor in terms of getting that number of 70 million plus. But again, it's not a coalition that seems to be enough. Uh, he, he has been defeated. And uh, the suburban vote that was paying attention and the urban vote really went toward Biden. And you see Trump, though, continuing to get enormous numbers, strong support in rural and exurban areas. And that kind of tells you about how America is in 2020. There's a really good scene in our finale, Bob, which is uh, it's in Iowa. It's when Ann Seltzer's famous Des Moines Register poll came out several days before the election. And our, my co-host, John Heilman, was talking to a guy named Dave Ketchel, K-O-E-C-H-E-L, Ketchel. From Iowa, yeah. yeah. From Iowa. He's a Republican. And this was the first indicator that many of us had that it's like, you know, her numbers actually turned out to be right on. It showed that, like, Republicans were returning, that Senator you know, Joni Ernst was going to be fine, but, you know, that Trump was going to win Iowa easily. And Ketchel was was observing on what was happening and kind of to your question, he was saying, listen, Republicans are just coming home. And, and part of it actually is COVID fatigue. You know, the, these are a lot of folks who just they want to get back to work. They want to put their kids in school and they're just exhausted by being away from their normal lives. They don't like the nanny state telling them what to do. And it's been telling them what to do for about six months. And so at a certain point, they just say, fuck it, man, I want to get back to my life. And that's a lot of what it was about. And to Bob's observation about the economy, here's an amazing, another amazing number that comes out of this election is that there's the old Reagan question that he asked, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And, and normally that's a pretty good indicator how things are going to turn out. 
56% of respondents said that they feel better now than they did four years ago with Donald Trump as president. So, you know, they think that the country's screwed up and COVID's all fucked up, but in terms of their own personal lives and are they better off, they say they are. That restless point, Mark, is such an important one. It didn't probably get enough attention in this campaign. I think so too. I really do. Which they express by saying, fuck your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I really appreciate you both for being here. Bob, uh, just want to thank you for all the episodes that you you joined me on. Uh, we had some really fun interviews with Harry Reid and Mickey Hart and Bob Weir. And man, it was such a great time. And I just really appreciate you making time because I know how busy you are to join me in those. And I learned a lot from asking questions uh, next to you. <laughs> I learned a lot about the trade. Mark, I appreciate you for coming on early in the year. You were like the COVID guest, like when the world shut down and we were, we didn't even know what to talk about. Like in, at first it was just like, uh, so what's your day like? You know, the world had suddenly stopped and we got to, to talk about it. And, but Mark, I also want to thank you for your tender heart and your compassion uh, that you bring to everything you do. And I think as we move through life, we find that some of the most formative experiences we have at whatever age are the most tragic experiences we have. And I believe that all of us, all of humanity, were united by at least one thing, and that's our suffering. And you wrote an essay for The Daily Beast about 10 years ago called The Gift of Cancer, and it was about your wife Annie's journey with cancer and your journey caring for someone and loving someone who's going through cancer. And, you know, I expressed at the top of this show in the introduction what I've been going through again with my daughter. And uh, I've always found that essay to be very helpful to me. Can you just briefly uh, tell our listeners about that and uh, what you learned by being on the journey of cancer with your wife? Well, sure, Bob. Uh, you know, it was uh, about, you know, 20 years ago or so when we discovered that my wife had a really fatal form of cancer and was not expected to survive. And it was it was a very devastating thing to go through and very tough on her. You know, she had, you know, horrible surgeries and radiation and all kinds of things, you know, nothing compared to what you're going through with Hallie, but, uh, but, but tough stuff. And, you know, I thought I was going to lose her and it just, it was a, uh, you know, I'd been so busy in my life that I just really had been paying attention to, you know, my home life and my kids and just thinking that, you know, what I was doing was so important. It was just was a real slap in the face for me to say, dude, you are, you know, when she, when she made, when she survived, it was like, dude, you are so fucking lucky that you didn't lose her. And you would have had so many regrets because you were not grateful for this gift that you have of, you know, a, of a great woman in your life. And, and I just, I was like, I did, it, it just, it, it, like I said, it was just such a slap in my face and such a, like a lightning bolt of recognition of, you know, how you, how you have to be grateful for every precious moment that you have, but the people you love. So there, there was a, I ran into Roger Ailes at uh, LaGuardia and he had just had a kid. He was older at the time. And he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I want to spend another goddamn day of my life in LaGuardia. I want to spend it with my kid. And he was like 65 or 70 at the time. And that gave me this idea. I said, you know what? I, it made me think about how many days I had left. And again, the important thing I wanted to do in my life was just stop you know, get off the fucking treadmill and just, you know, look around and be grateful for what I have. And I figured out, you know, sort of averaged if I live to be, you know, what the average age is for somebody like me, like 85 or something. I counted those days as 10,000 something uh, was the number. And so I bought that many beads. I put them in a jar 
And every day, and so that's my, my, jar, my jar of life. And I know that I have that many days left. And because my, you know, it took my wife getting cancer to realize that every one was valuable. I take out one every day and I just say like a little prayer. I just kind of think about the people I love and stop for a moment every day. Uh, and then, you know, at some point, hopefully I'll be out of beads <laughs> and I'll have to start putting some, go buy some new beads. But anyway, like you, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's tough stuff, but sometimes it takes those kind of experiences to, to recognize the things that, re- that really count in life. Well, I'm, I'm just uh, grateful for both of you. And I appreciate our friendships and uh, thankful that we got to do this together and hopefully uh, more in the future. And hopefully we'll be all together at some concerts here in 2021 with good health, good health for our nation, good health for our families, good health for our friends and to better days, my friends. Kick it hard and carry on regardless. You're here. Kick it. All right, guys. Thank you so much. This is great. See you later. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye bye. Finally, I'd like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to Politics of Truth over the past 11 months. We ran this race together. I hope you learned a little something along the way. I know I have. I'd also like to thank everyone here at Osiris for their help and encouragement. Especially, I'd like to thank RJB and Tom Marshall for believing in this show and investing in this show. I'd also like to thank producer Adam Kaplan and editor Bradley Stratton. You guys are the best of the best. I learned so much from working with you, and it's been an honor. Finally, as I said at the beginning of this program, 2020 has been hard on all of us. Despite the dire nature of the situation, I hope that you found our time together somewhat soothing. I know that I did. It was fun. I learned so much. We had incredible guests I'd like to thank each and every one of them for uh, taking the time to do this show. And uh, I hope we can look forward to better days ahead in our personal lives, in our professional lives, and in, in our country, and in the political rhetoric of our country. I hope we can truly heal and truly treat each other as the human beings that we are, because we do share so much. We share suffering. We share the challenges that life on earth bring to every human being. Those things can't be divided or separated. They're not red or blue. They're human. And I hope we can begin to look inside and look at the person across the aisle from us. They're not our enemies. (laughs) They're, They're our friends. They're our brothers. They're our sisters. So until next time, take care. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. Politics of Truth.